0: Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity to look at your word and this new book we're getting ready to start studying. And we ask for your guidance and leading as we go through it. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, the book of Micah. Uh, A little bit about it. The the name Micah means who is like Jehovah. Micah was a prophet over about a 30-year period. He was a contemporary to Isaiah. And uh, he preached during the reigns of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. And those, if you know your kings, that means something. If not, then just take my word for it. They're the kings. They were some of the kings of Judah. And his message was to both Israel and Judah. At this point, the kingdom of Israel is divided, and one half is Israel and one half is, is Judah. Uh, Israel is the northern kingdom, and mm-hmm. Judah is the southern kingdom. Uh, Israel has, in all their kings, they never had a single good king, good godly king. And they were very famous for their golden calf worship and worship of Baal. So just to give you a little bit, in Judah they had some good kings. Hezekiah was one of the good kings. Uh, Ahaz and Jotham weren't, weren't all that good. <laughs> and uh, we're going to be looking at how he prophesies to both kingdoms. Uh, the time frame on this is approximately 750 BC that he, that he is uh, at and the book breaks down into three broad categories uh, chapters 1 through 3 are basically the coming judgments on, on Samaria or the northern kingdom and ver- uh, chapters 4 through 5 are the promises of deliverance and a lot of messianic prophecies within within those chapters, and chapters six through seven is basically some exhortation to them and the promises of of um, restoration. So basically, he says you're going to be judged. Then he gets into the messianic prophecies, and then he gets into a lot of end time, you know, uh, references. So that kind of gives us the background of this book and I like giving the background of the books when we first started just so we can kind of know who it is we're talking to, who their audience is and in this case it's going to be both nations. Uh, Northern Kingdom, when we talk about Northern Kingdom especially in this book the Northern Kingdom can be called Israel, the Northern King- Kingdom can be called Samaria. <laughs> uh, it's got a number of designations and the, the Southern Kingdom which is Judah is almost always called Judah or the Southern Kingdom. Every once in a while they'll call him Israel, but it'd be very clear if they use Israel for the Southern Kingdom because it talks about the king in charge of them at the same time. All right, Micah, chapter one, verse one. The word of the Lord that came to Micah, the Marozthite, in the days of Jothan, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. So this gives you a lot of the information. First, he tells them that God speaks to him, and then he says that he's Micah, and that he's a Maharasite. And nobody really knows exactly where his hometown is. Uh, It is believed that it's a place that's about 30 miles southwest of Jerusalem. And he's gonna refer to all kinds of cities that, that we don't know where they're at anymore in this day and age. Uh, when it comes to maps of this period of time, our, the maps we have are not all that great. We have to kind of look at where they're at. And then he says he sees the, the, the word that God's given him is concerning Samaria, and Samaria is the capital of the northern kingdom. In verse 2, Hear all you people, hearken, O earth, and all that therein is, and let the Lord God be witness against you the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord comes forth out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. And the mountain shall be molten under him and the valley shall be cleft as wax before the fire and as water is poured down a steep place. For the transgression of Jacob is all this and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what are the high places of Judah? Are they not Jerusalem? Let's look at this. He's talking about judgment here, and he says that God. At first, he calls the people to hear, and this here is to listen with the idea of being obedient, and hearken to to pay attention. Okay, he's saying, hear and obey, and by the way, listen. <laughs> okay, so he's kind of being very very stringent here, people start paying attention because he is his preaching is at a time when Israel is really bad and Judah isn't very good either when he first starts preaching and so we see God saying judgment is coming. Now we have the advantage because we know that judgment came and and they left and were taken out of their countries but in this point in time he's saying pay attention it's time to repent and it says The Lord is the witness against you. The Lord has taken the witness stand and he has declared your evil. Jesus has has died for our sins, but those who reject him will have him also be their witness against them that you have rejected me. This is when when we read in him, many in that day will say, Lord, Lord, didn't I do? And Jesus said, depart from me. I never knew you. He will be the witness against those who rejected him that they did not know each other. He did not know them. If you are in a relationship with God by salvation and you walk away from Him, you will be under conviction. You will not enjoy the sins that you commit because God will be whispering in your ear, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong. And if you'll have conviction in your heart, if you can sin without conviction, then you don't have a relationship with Him. And then you're need to get that relationship with him. And it's as simple as that because it's all grace. I mean, I'm not, God doesn't expect me to be perfect because he knows that I'm a sinner. We're all sinners. Yeah, we're all sinners, so he doesn't expect me to be perfect. He does expect me to listen to him and be obedient to him, to the you know, to the amount that I will surrender my life to him and give us rewards. But again, As we said over and over, if you can sin and not be convicted, you've got a problem about you need to start looking at yourself and saying, do I know God? And the same for anybody we know. If they can sin without conviction, and we don't know if they're under conviction, just because a person sins does not mean they're not under conviction. And we'll never know another person's life. Uh, Only they and God will know that. Now, we can tend to understand, you know, if they show no sorrow for anything they've done, then there's probably not having conviction either. But that's not for me to judge. My job is to pray for them. if they if they're living a bad lifestyle, then I'll pray for their salvation or at least for them to come back to God. And that's between them and God. but I will pray for if somebody is living in a lifestyle of sin, I will pray for their salvation. Now, whether that's right or wrong, I don't know, but if somebody is not living, and James says, show me, your faith by your, you know, without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. He didn't say you couldn't be a Christian without works, but he said you're never going to prove it. How do you prove it? If you're not living a lifestyle, how do you prove that you are following God? by, oh, oh, God, I'm following you, but I'm not doing anything anybody can look at. It doesn't quite work that way. Could they be saved? Yeah, they could be saved, but it would be a pretty tough... It's always been said, and almost in kind of a joking manner, you know, if you were arrested for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? And this is an important thing. Do do I ha- am I talking about people? Am I living living where I'm not sinning on uh, on a routine, everyday base, you know, basis over the same sin? You know, I've, I've got, I'm getting victory. I'm I'm growing in Christ reading my word, going to church, you know, telling people about God, all you know, helping out the poor, helping out the, the needy. If I'm doing all these different things and I'm in a relationship with God, then I can show, hey, this is this is the proof of my relationship. Technically I could be in a relationship with God and never open my mouth, but man, that would be a tough thing to do because Jeremiah said, your word burned in my mouth. You know, he got mad at God and said, I'm not sharing anymore because I'm tired of, of all the bad things happening to me. And then he said, the word of God burned in his mouth and he could not stay silent. If you have a real relationship with God, you're not going to be able to stay silent. You're not going to be able to not do things to, to build people up, not help people, because God is in there burning in you and saying, I've got to come out. I've got to come out. And if you're not doing anything, it'd be hard to prove that you have that relationship. Can people do it? I don't know. I, you know all I know is that you know, if you're abiding in the vine of Jesus, you're going to produce fruit. If you don't produce fruit, then you have to be, have a hard time showing that you're abiding in the vine, you know, that you're, you're attached to Jesus and He's, your, and he's your, the growth pattern. Is it possible? I'm not gonna rule out anything because it's between them and God and it's all by grace. But they would never be able to prove that they are until they stand before God and Jesus says, Okay, I knew you. You know. We knew each other we knew each other, so come on in, you know, you didn't do anything, you didn't grow, you didn't get any rewards. Mm-hmm. You know, so it is I guess it's technically possible, I just don't think it's going to be it definitely wouldn't be the norm. So, yes, people can fall and come back, uh but if they co- vacillate between saying, I know him and I don't know him, or I believe in God and I don't believe in God, I don't believe that they're, go- they're not in a relationship with God to, to, begin. To, to begin with. Let's look at this. It says, the God is witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. And it says, Behold, the Lord comes forth out of his place and will come down and tread the high places of the earth. Now this does not mean that he's stepping all over the mountains necessarily, because remember we've talked about it. The high places refer to on the mountains they would worship and sacrifice to Baal and to Astaroth and to all these other gods, so they were called the high places. And all through First uh, Kings and Chronicles, you read that such and such king of Judah came to power, and when they were good they cleaned up the temple, and they said, but they did not get rid of the high places. And that's referring to the idolatry worship up in the mountain, mountains and other, other places outside of Jerusalem. But it says, Micah is warning them that God's going to come forth and He's going to destroy the high places in His anger and it, you know, toward them. And it says, the mountains shall be molten under Him and the valleys shall be cleft as wax before the fire and as waters that are poured down the steep place. Now, he's given a quite a parallel here. He says, God, the mountain, the high places, the mountains will be like molten. They'll, they'll melt away. And he uses as the example, as wax in front of a fire. And if you get wax too close to, to a fire, it melts. Okay, and it melts pretty quickly. <laughs> and he says, and as water... Pour down a steep place is be the cleft that he's talking about, and if you've ever watched water running down a hill or something, you know, in a in a rush when the when the high w- waters, it, it'll it'll actually cut the bank, cut a cut a bank into it pretty quick, especially if it's soft. <laughs> but if it, even if it's not soft, a place where water runs over a, a cliff or something, you'll see indentation <laughs> that's developed over time because water is a very powerful erosion, very powerful. It'll cut, it'll cut through rock. It'll cut through just about anything given enough time. And so he says God is going to come down and He's going to destroy these high places. They will melt before Him and He will destroy. That could be as simple as just the, uh, the, the temple items, the wood, the, the arcs, or the literal mountains. We look at Revelation, where He's going to send earthquakes and the mountains are going to fall, and so we see all see that God's power, and He's basically saying God's power is strong. When He moves, He's going to bring judgment, and this is this is something we want to be aware of. God lets things happen for a long time sometimes. In Israel, He let it go on for. For four hundred and ninety years he let them misbehave before he took and put them into judgment. He let the Canaanites and the and the all the different ites in the promised land, you know, worship their gods for four hundred and thirty years before he judged them for their sins. He's taken almost two thousand years since Jesus came to let things work work out their sins and and keep calling them to repentance, come to repentance, come to repentance. And then He'll judge the world. God is very patient. And we as people sometimes think that God's patience is, you know, just letting us get away with things. And He's saying, no, I'm just being patient. I want to give you enough, basically He's saying, I want to give you enough rope to hang yourselves. And He's very patient with the, the lost world. And sometimes, you know, as, as David said in the Psalms, you know, why do the heathen rage and, the, you know, why do, why do the bad, you know, why do the heathen get away with things and we get judged? Well, we're his children. As his children, he disciplines us a lot faster than he will the lost world because we're supposed to know better. What is a <laughs> sort of heathen? heathen is anybody who doesn't know God. So God gives them enough rope. They don't know him. He says, okay, well, they're not my children. I'm going to keep trying to reach out to them to draw them to me. I want them to come to me. But he just lets them keep going and keep going and keep going. And they tend to think they're getting away with things. But they're empty. The lost world is empty. They don't don't know God. and And they're trying to fill the space that only he can fill with all kinds of stuff. And all of us may have been there before we got saved, depending on what age we got saved, but we know that emptiness where we we're trying to find what it was we were missing in our life. And people fill it with all kinds of different things. Uh, drugs and alcohol are a big one. Sex is another one. Some people do it with workaholism. Some people do it by trying to learn. Ever learning and never learning. <laughs> you know, gaining knowledge, but never learning. There are people out there that are, you know, they are smart and becoming smarter, but they never get the knowledge filled because they're not looking at the right source of knowledge. And there's, we try to fill it with all kinds of things. Some people try to fill it with religion, okay? Instead of a relationship with God, they get into religion, okay? I'm gonna read all the religious books. I'm gonna read, I'm going to do all the practices. I'm going to follow all these rules and try to try to be as good as I can happens all the time people read the bible and don't don't see god in it they I mean, many people read the bible and a lot of people will say before i became a christian I, I couldn't even understand anything in the bible it's just worthless words to them until the holy spirit starts speaking and making it become alive this is people read the bible all the time i i have talked to a couple of professors in college they they know the bible inside out but they don't know anything about god they may even get common sense out of it but they don't they don't always see God all they see his words. And this is why everything about Christianity is that it's a relationship with God. This is the way I get to know him it's through the word. But when I know him, everything on the pages jumps out and says, here I am, you know, look at me. <laughs> but most people can, if you don't know God, you can look at these words and not see the beauty of God in them they just become no, great no. knowledge no, yeah. it's no it's no better than reading the quran or the or any of the other books of the different uh, religions because it's just a bunch of good words and good advice and you might get you know they look at it and say hey okay this is not a bad way to live i, I want to live this way and they get themselves into religion and religion will not get you into heaven religion will blind you religion will make you think that you're something special, but we need to have the reli- the relationship with God, and that is what Christianity is. Christianity is not religion. Okay, religion is a set of rules to help you please a deity, and Christianity is a relationship with the God of the universe that He gave us the power to do because He paid the price to allow us to be in a relationship with Him. And this is why Christianity is so great because it's not me keeping a bunch of rules. It's not me trying to be good because God says, I'm not any good. I'm not, worth, I'm not worth anything as far as my own self. But by being in Christ, He says, now you're perfect and now you can have a relationship with Him. And He comes and works out of us. And we become more and more like Him. We, we do good works, not because we're trying to please God but because he's changing us to be like him so therefore we do good works because we are becoming more and more like him and you know so it's really the motivation behind the good works that we're doing you know am I doing it because I feel like I have to please God or am I doing it because he's changing who I am and as he changes who I am I will become more like him and do more and more good works. And people will then look at you and say, Wow, that person's look at all the good work and then they'll mistakenly say that you're religious. <laughs> no, I'm in a relationship with God who's changing me. I'm doing all the things you think of a religious person doing, but it's God doing them through me because He's changing who I am. And then we get to do good works, but not not for the reason of trying to please Him. It's just we are becoming that kind of person. And that's when it gets to be much simpler to live the christian the christian life that people want you to live god is teaching you to love people so you start loving people and they they mistake it as a religious exercise you know you've got really good discipline you, you've you've learned to be nice to people well no it's god changing who i am and i'm being nice because that is who god is making me be and so it is all the power of god and all the time, I keep getting people go, Well, but yeah, you've got to do good works. I'm going, Yes, but the good works aren't you doing them, it's God changing you. you, know, it's, you know, and this is very important for us to understand because we too often want to get out of the realm of grace into I did something to earn it or keep it. Okay? And therefore, it's my work, you know, here's, my, here's my works. <laughs> and yes, we will do good works, but not because of my flesh, not because I've disciplined myself but because God has crucified me and lives through me. And I hope that makes some sense because it's you know, it, it's, a real, it's a razor edge. You know, we, you know, yes, we will do good works, but it's not because I'm making myself do good works to please God, it's because he's changing me. And we want to be able to see that. And that's why we can't judge one another because where are we in our relationship with God? Every one of us are in a different place with our relationship with God. And God individualizes the plan for each one of us. And I told, I told some of the guys at the prison the other day, I'm going, you know, you know, while you're asking me about how do you deal with this person that you don't see doing things that they're, you know, the way you think they should, they're probably asking why you're not doing the things that they think are important. I mean, you're probably both at each other saying, you know, they're not, you're not as good as me because you're not doing these things that I, that, that I do. Uh, and this is some place we've got to be careful of in Christianity. God works individually with us, grows us at a different way, at a rate, and in different ways. So when we look at each other and say, "Well, gee, they're, God, uh, they're not doing the same things you've got me doing," and you know, they could just as easily be looking at you and saying, "God, you're—they're you're, they're not doing—and both of you are doing great—if <laughs> you would just quit judging each other by each other. You know, but it's human nature, it's fleshly nature for us to look at somebody and say, well, I'm better than these people, so I'm okay. And that's not what God wants us doing. He's we, He wants us to judge by His standard. And by His standard, we need to be looking at each, at ourselves and saying, man, i got a long ways to go. I'm nowhere near being perfect like He wants me to be. And if I'm judging by His standard, I'm not going to judge other people because I'm already having a big enough trouble getting my own life under control, that I'm not going to worry about everybody else who, who may seem worse to me, but I've got to, you know, when I get my, set my standard against God, there's no way I can get proud and judgmental of other people because I started looking at my life and say, boy, I'm really messed up. No matter how far I've come along, I'm still, if I'm setting myself against God, I've got problem, I, I I will not appear as anything significant in my own mind. And I think I've just mentioned this to various times, is I went, to, I went shopping with an artist one time, and he needed some new canvas for his, for his uh, art. And we went to the art store, and this place had like 100 canvases out. And out of the 100 canvases, he found like three that he thought were good enough to use. This one has a dimple here. This one has a, a mark here. And I'm looking at him and I'm going, I don't see anything. But his eye saw the imperfections because of his because of what he was looking for. God looks at us and says, if he wanted to look at us without seeing Christ, he'd say, here's all your imperfections. But the whole point of this is, is when we look at ourselves, we're not looking at ourselves to be hypercritical, but by the same token, our standard should be... Here's the standard, God's standard, and here I am somewhere, even as good, you know, however good I am, I'm, I'm way down the, the, the standard, and I don't use it to get introspective and to, to tear myself down, but I go, okay, God, I've got a long ways to go. It, we look at it in a way to keep striving to go forward, not, not to get apathetic, because if we're looking at each other, we're going. Oh, gee, you know, everybody I know, I'm better than, so I'm not, you know, you can get very apathetic because, you know, you're looking at the wrong standard. And we want to look at God as our standard. Verse 5, And for the transgression of Jacob is is all this, and for their sins the house of Israel. All right, so God is going to judge them for the transgressions of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. And Israel had, in this case, northern kingdom is what they're referring to. Israel had a lot of problems, (laughs) okay? Uh, When they first broke off their king, I believe it was Jeroboam, and get Jeroboam and Rehoboam mixed up, but I think it was Jeroboam, he thought that he did not want the people, his people going back to Jerusalem to worship because he figured if they kept their ties with Jerusalem, they'd eventually overthrow his kingdom and, and become one again. So he built golden calves in Dan and just north of Jerusalem. And so, and he told the people, Here are your gods, worship your gods. And his people worshiped the golden calves. And from that point on, they always in Israel had problems with worshiping golden calves and much other problems. So, the whole time in the Northern Kingdom they were rejecting God. Now not every single person obviously because we we know the nation did and it's much like the United States. As a nation the United States is turning away from God. But that does not mean everybody in the United States is turning away from God. A significant number are because of the way the schools teach and and the uh, entertainment industry is is really making fun of it but you know, so when we say that Israel turned away from God, we're not meaning every single individual in Israel turned away from Him. Just enough to say, as a whole, they did. And probably most of them. Uh, because, you, again, you're in your schools, you're not going to Jerusalem, you're not teaching God, so, and you're teaching that these are your gods, your, your, most of your people, but God always has a remnant of people. All right? no matter how bad things seem to get all through history and into the future, God will have a remnant of people that follow him. He always will, no matter how bad it is. Elijah complained to God and said, God, I'm the only one that's worshiping you. And God says, I've got 500 or 5,000 that haven't bent their knee to to Baal. So get back and do what I told you to do, (laughs) okay? But he always has a remnant of people. All through the Middle Ages, when the Catholic Church was taking over Christianity, God had a remnant of people that followed him the way that he wanted them to follow them. So there's always been a remnant through history And always will, and even as you remember as we've been in Revelation, there's the 144,000 Jews, there's the two witnesses, the 144,000 Jews are witnessing and bringing people to God, even during the tribulation period, after the church is taken out, God will have a remnant of people preaching and teaching salvation, okay? so whenever satan's attacking you and saying well you're the only one there's nobody else or you you few that are in in whatever church no <laughs> there is a there are more people out there following god and satan likes to satan loves to try to get us to feel all alone you know whether it's the good side you're the, you're one of the very few Christians you know you're one of the few left or he really likes to do it when we fail and we have problems saying, well, you're the only one that this has ever happened to, you know. How many people do you know that this has happened to? Well, Ecclesiastes tells us there's nothing new under the sun. Nothing, uh, Corinthians 10, 10:13 13, there is no, uh, there's no, there's nothing overtaking you, but such that is common to man. <laughs> okay, all sins are common. And all sins are, are, are prevailed upon by many people and Satan comes along and tries to try to tell us, you know, you're the only one, and that's and that is the 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 benefit of things like Celebrate Recovery, where people come together and realize, oh, I'm not the only one suffering from whatever it might be. I'm not the only one that gets angry for no reason. I'm not the only one that's that's drinking all the time. I'm not the only one who has problems with with uh, sexual desires. I'm not the only one that, you know, whatever it might be, it. We are not the only one, and it's important for us to understand that. Because Satan's desire is to make us feel alone. By knowing that others... You're right, in one sense, it doesn't make us feel better just because others are going through it, but Satan can no longer isolate us and saying, you are the only one that goes through this. And that's what silence does, is it makes us feel like we're isolated and alone. Knowing that others... You're right, in one sense, it doesn't necessarily make me feel better than others go through it but helps me to know that I'm not the only one oh, I see. So, you don't feel so you're not isolated and you now start going okay now I can deal with this because you know now you can start grabbing hold of it's common to all people it's 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 not something that's just me and Satan likes to get us to feel powerless you know you're the only one that you know you know if they, if they ever knew what you did you know they you know they would judge you because you're the only one that's ever had this problem and in the back of our mind, we know we're not the only one to have this problem, but we start agreeing with Satan. <laughs> and we start backing away from everybody because, wow, if I'm, I'm such a terrible sinner. I'm the, I'm the only one that's ever done this. And it causes us problems. By getting it out and saying, it's common, it's nothing new. Now I can say, now I can come to God because I'm not some special sinner you know, really bad sinner because I'm doing something that nobody else has ever had a problem with, I can come to God and go, forgive me. So it is very important that we bring out these transgressions and bring them before God. Besides the fact that he knows them already. That's the confess part. You know, we need to confess and and tell him, I am agreeing with you that this is sin. We like to hide it. We like to excuse it. Uh, psychology tries to get us to blame somebody else and then try to work through our blame which why blame somebody else in the first place if you want to take me out of it but but our goal is to recognize that it is sin yes my past has impact okay What, what I grew up with if I've never seen another way of living I'm going to live the way I see as an example but it's still my choice that leaves me there or gets me out of it. Okay, and we've, God is always in this business of, you made the choice. <laughs> Same thing I say, if you're sitting in a church and you're getting taught wrong in your church, your job was to get into the Word of God and, and check out what was being taught and make corrections by going to a different church or, or learning somehow else. Yeah, now that pastor or teacher is going to be in big trouble with God for having taught wrong, <coughs> Okay, and yes, he had impact on your life, but you are still the one that chose to stay there and listen to that person. You know, past a certain point that, on it, okay. Yes, I, I, I was in a home where you know I grew up in a home where I got beat up every day and sexually abused and and told to go out and steal and all this stuff. You know, but as you get older, you still have your personal choice. Now yes that had a great impact on you okay but God is saying here's the truth are you willing to go in just as he has told us in in, uh, in Ephesians that uh, we were studying just to that let him that stole steal no more okay even though stealing is his life pattern and again we brought that up that that's not just the only sin he's referring to okay he's referring to any sin <laughs> stop doing it okay and it is a choice but the power comes from him okay because most of us can't just stop doing whatever it is we've been doing you now we can you know we can't just change our life pattern and change overnight it takes God but God can change you very quickly when you turn your life over to him and we see that in salvation experiences where God, you know totally changes somebody's life almost miraculously overnight and he doesn't do it for everybody but they were ready to give up whatever it was that he took from their took from them because but he wants to he's ready to and all we've got to do is say God I want to I want you to take this from me and give me new life in this area and it all comes down to that new life and the crucifixion of the old and totally believing what He says. And it's not easy sometimes to totally believe what He says because it goes against our flesh. Our flesh wants to do different things and, and God's saying, this is what I want you to do. And it sometimes takes years, sometimes it's instant. A lot of it depends on how fed up we are with the lifestyle. And I think that's when I've seen the greatest change in somebody is when they are really fed up with whatever whatever lifestyle they are, and they come to God and say, God, I am basically sick and tired of this. I want deliverance. And basically when you come to him and say, I'm giving up, I can't I can't make the change. Then he comes in and he says, okay, that's just what I wanted. Now I can make the change in you. And as I've told people, there's something that happened in my life about 15, 20 years ago, where I fought with God for six years to get something changed. And finally, I gave up and God changed it overnight. Six years of my trying, and I finally said, God, I give up, and He changed it in minutes. Okay? This is how easy it is. But we've got to get to the place where we're t- sick and tired of trying to do it ourselves and say, God, I just can't do it. I need you to do it. And, and you'll almost probably hear him say, well, it's about time that you got tired of doing it <laughs> as he changes you. Because he will let us, if we want to fight and struggle and do it ourselves, he will let us fight and struggle and try to do it ourselves for as long as we want to try to fight and struggle and do it ourselves and not truly get victory. And then he'll step in when we ask him and say, okay, fine, I'll just crucify this and and it's gone. And it's amazing how fast it is done when we truly give up. And I'm not saying use this as a game, well, God, I give up, come in and change. No, you're going to have to truly be tired of doing it yourself. Now, the more we grow with him, the more likely, and the more we see him do this with us, the easier it becomes. We get to fight less and less with him the more we see him doing this and changing us. And we start seeing his power and and eventually we start getting smarter and saying, God, I'm not gonna fight as long anymore. (laughs) And we give up a lot faster because we know that it's so much nicer when he takes over. But it's something you have to experience yourself and know that it is, I got tired of being doing it myself. So verse 5 says, what is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? Because Samaria was into idolatry worship. And what are the high places of Judah? Are they not Jerusalem? Many times they set up Jerusalem to be a lot of idolatry worship in Jerusalem. And if you read verse, the chapters in 1 King, uh, Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles, you'll find times when they spent weeks having to empty out the temple of all the garbage that had God put into it so they could worship God again. And it was really kind of hard to think of. It would be like you know this church becoming the stockpile for all the garbage in town because nobody came here to worship God, and then want to want to clean it up. And verse six. Therefore, I will make Samaria as a heap of the field and as a planting of a vineyard. I will pour down stones, therefore, thereof into the valley, and I will discover the foundations thereof. You know, he says he's going to judge Samaria. He's going to, he's going to destroy the cities. And we're going to see that he does do that later on. We see that he does. And this is, again, years before this is going to happen that he's preaching. And it says he's going to make it a heap. And as the plantings of the vineyard. And if you know anything about wine dressing, and especially those that have been around California with the vineyards, every once in a while they prune those things down to practically nothing. You know, and you look at it, and you go, "What are all these stumps in the field?" You know, There's just tiny stumps in the field, and they they grow back. And God's saying, "I'm gonna, I'm going to basically dress the vineyard. I'm gonna, I'm gonna cut it back. I'm, I'm pruning all the dead out of it." And, um, and then He says, "He will pour down stones," and that literally is kind of a interesting thing because we know in in uh, one of the battles of Joshua, Joshua fought God. It said that God threw down stones from the heavens upon the enemy. And those that died of the stones were more than the people killed. All right? And I don't know if it was talking about hailstones or real stones, but either way, to, if it was hailstones hard enough to kill somebody, it would be a big enough deal. But here it says he's going he's to pour down stones into the valley to fill it. And he's going to look Maybe for the foundation. I don't mean to interrupt on this, but is, is there volcanic activity in this area? It sounds like God had a volcano go off and cut down stones on the He could have done it that way, but he could have done it supernaturally as well. Supernatural, so it's it be uh, meteors or whatever. That's you want to be careful. Anytime you try to explain away any of the, the miracles of God. I'm just curious if you knew the, the terrain. Is it a volcanic area? You know, I don't know. I don't know how much volcanic activity there is in the Middle East, but... You know, it sounds like rivers flowing. Sounds like a lava flow. Yeah, God can do a lot of things, and a lot of people have tried to explain away just about all the miracles. You know, the, oh, there's this group that said, that have said, well, this, you know, the the plagues of Egypt that happened on Egypt happened because this volcano exploded here and it polluted the the river and the river was polluted and, and algae flowed up it. You know, and you know what? My attitude is, even if you can explain how they happened, they still happened at the right time for God to say, this is what's going to happen. So it's still God. If God uses natural means to make something happen, it doesn't make it any less a miracle that it happened when it happened. God is God. He knows things about, about this world that we know nothing about, and it could be literally just plain scientific. Activity that that we call a miracle, but he says, "Well, I just had to touch this part, and this happened." Directs it right to the enemy. So, uh, I'm not even if people can explain away the miracles, it doesn't make it any less perfect timing. You know, did you know did did this miracle happen because a volcano exploded and it threw the rocks down on him? Great big deal. God still made it at the perfect time timing, for the enemy to be killed by rocks. So. I will, I will go with supernatural, and if they go, well, it could be, then fine. It could be. I'm not going to sit there and argue with them because my God my God made the world. He knows how to make things happen, and he knows how to make the timing happen just perfect. And so it's not a problem. Verse 7, All and all the graven images thereof shall be beaten to pieces, and the hires thereof shall be burnt with fires, and all the idols thereof I will lay desolate, for she gathered it, of a hire of a harlot, and they shall return to the hire of a harlot. So we look at this, and God's continuing on His judgment. He says He's going to destroy all the uh, idols. Okay, and we see this happening. Various kings of of Judah would destroy idols when the country was taken into captivity. All their high places were basically desolate. You know, nobody was there to continue. And it says, they shall be beaten into pieces. And then it says, all the hires thereof shall be burnt with fire. And this literally means the prostitutes. Okay, and remember, we've talked about this in the various past times. All these different idolatry worshipers, and in, in the way they worshipped, almost every one of them included sexual activity in their worship. And if it was a fertility god, it was a lot of sexual activity. Baal, Astoroth, and many of these other ones were fertility gods and goddesses. And when you worshipped there, it was a sexual orgy, basically, was their, was, their, was their worship time. And you gave your offerings to the, goddess, you know, the god that basically you were hiring a prostitute And this is what he's saying, that all the prostitutes will be burned with the fire. And God has said, I'm going to judge it. All their idols will, will lay desolate. And she, Samaria, gathered it for the hire of the harlot, and they shall return to the hire of the harlot. So it's going to be returned back to them. So this is a very descriptive thing that God is talking about. And this is something that's very important for us to understand. God does not mince words when he's talking about what's going on, okay? And there's some people that don't like to read, you know, don't like to have these things brought out, but it is what it is, okay? Uh, They worked on this, and he says, "'Therefore I will wail and howl, "'I will go stripped and naked, "'I will make a wailing like the dragons, "'and a mourning as the owls, "'for her wound is incurable, For it is come unto Judah. He is come to the gates of my people, even Jerusalem. So here we see Micah saying he's going to wail and howl. And it says stripped, which means barefoot. But it also means, and then the naked means to be exposed. It could literally mean a physical nakedness. Or it could even mean just their sins are being exposed. Okay, and we see it used both ways in the scriptures, and here the context fits either way, because they are being in judgment. So they, so that brings out exposure, but it can also mean that they're being chased away from these idols in the middle of of everything. So, don't know which it is, and it doesn't really matter because both work. All right, and it says I will make a wailing like the dragons and a mourning like the owls and. And dragons, no, we don't know what dragons sound like, but you know, a big enough dinosaur probably made enough noise to be quite noisy. this New King James, jackals. Uh, jackals, MCV? jackals is not the right definition. In the morning, uh, like the ostriches. Ostriches. Okay. Uh, jackals is not the right de- definition because it's not the same word to begin with in Hebrew. And what they're trying to do is, it literally means large serpents, which are what dragons were really described as. So because it can't be uh, dragons or dinosaurs, <laughs> they've got to say, well, it's got to be some other creature that's, that's not really accepted in the area. And you're going to find all the newer versions do that same thing. They, they try to <coughs> define anywhere where the. King James and Older used dragons, they're used jackals. <coughs> and they will also, in Job, where it says, Behold the behemoth, and you know, with its long tail, and they'll write in there that it's a hippopotamus or an elephant, and, and neither one of them have a very big tail, so it, it's, you know, it makes no sense to use those animals to describe behemoth. Uh, because it says it has a tail like a cedar, and if you've ever seen an elephant or a hippopotamus's tail, uh, it would, nobody in their right mind would say it's a cedar tree. <laughs> you know, the hippo has a little brush. You know, it's very little brush, and the and the elephant has a you know about a f- foot long little whip tail. But uh, neither one of those would you say, hey, that looks that looks just like a cedar tree. <laughs> right. uh, but because they don't want to even come close to the idea, because again, we have this problem of the preconceived idea. They believe the dragon uh, the dinosaurs did not live with man because they believe the science has said that they're millions of years old. God created the heavens and the earth in 6 days and he created all the living things within that 6 days. Dragons walked with man until after the flood and beyond probably. So we know that they were creatures that lived. God created them, and if He created them, He created them on either day five, if they were in the water and f- or flew, or day six, if they walked on the land. Period. Now, you know, science can try to say all these things about them that they're, they're they're millions of years old, but their science is falling apart. They found they found a t- Tyrannosaurus rex bone with a partially partially. Uh, fossilized and in it they found red blood cells okay Uh, that's a pretty good trick for something that's supposed to be millions of years old (laughs) to still have red blood cells in it okay so science is the science around evolution is falling apart very quickly they're still trying to teach it because it denies God And those who are still trying to follow it are those who don't want a God because if there's a God, they have to obey him. So the world is trying very hard to disprove the existence of God, which they cannot do. So we want to be able to be careful. And this goes back into why did they not put dragons or dinosaur in there? Because that would make them have to defend the idea of of Genesis 1-1, uh, you know, the, the first chapter of Genesis being true for what it says. And because they don't want to admit that it's true, they try to do things like they're, they're obviously jackals. There's no, no such thing as big, big lizards or big oh, serpents. Think got to begin Yeah. So then it says, for her wound is incurable. Basically, God's saying Samaria has gone too far. They cannot, they, they won't, in this case, he's saying they won't repent they're incurable and what was worse is they've infected Judah his other his other his people and come to the people even to Jerusalem okay the sin of Samaria was now infecting uh, Judah and we see that over and over when when we hang around or stay around people that are sinning we get infected and this is one of the reasons that we tell people, you get away from the sin. You know, does it mean that we isolate ourselves from, from sinners? No, because we're supposed to have no sinners so that we can give them the gospel. But, does it, but it also means that they're not going to be our best friend. You know, we're not going to hang around with them and, and, and commit their sins and everything. We need to get out of that lifestyle get around Christians, and then we go in and we make our little fortes into the, the world, world system and give the gospel. We, we can be friendly with them, but they're not going to be our best friend. They're not going to be the person we hang out with all the time. Because if we hang out with them all the time, we're going to fall. Because the evil almost always wins and draws you down. It's the same thing if you're trying to pull somebody up gravity helps pull you down <laughs> okay so usually when you're trying to pull somebody up you can end up being pulled down a lot easier than you've pulled them up without special equipment and ropes and pulleys and all the other stuff that they that they they will show you know, you you watch these movies where somebody's sitting, you know, laying over the edge of a cliff holding on to this person, you know, and it's uh, too often they show the person being lifted up which is really not what would happen <laughs> You know, most of the time, you're going to lose, you know, lose that person if you don't get somebody to help you very quickly because their weight is going to tire your arms out. The gravity's pulling down on them. And the idea of pulling them up, unless they're very small and you're very strong, and or you're strong, you're not going to pull them up. And you'd probably start sliding over the cliff if you're not you know, really braced because a lot of you are hanging over trying to hold them. So, you know, it, it, it's all these, all these fancy things, but in reality, it doesn't really happen. It happens in our movies and stuff, these great rescues where somebody runs up to the cliffside and pulls them up. Uh, but that's not really what would happen in real life. You're going to be very fortunate to bring that person up without specialized equipment and help. So we're going to stop here and end with prayer. Lord, we come before you. We ask you to just help us as we go out. Help us to learn to give our lives over to you and allow you to be the source of our strength and the source of our living the way you want us to live. And we just thank you for all that you've done for us and how much you really care for us. In Jesus' name, amen.